Well, as Pastor uh, Barry alluded to, uh, I am not John Guest. Uh, for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, John and I don't look anything alike. Uh, John is a much taller, he has more hair. Um, but uh, I am uh, happy to be here this morning. And just to kind of piggyback off of what Pastor Barry said, it really was a wonderful service yesterday here, the memorial service for Captain Sean. The fact that we, all those folks were in the room here, Pastor Barry and Pastor John and, and Keith and the, and the worship team did a wonderful job. And it was a great opportunity that uh, John was able to present the message, the gospel message to those uh, who may have not been in a church before or in a long time. And that God uh, healed them just for a, a little bit of time to present the word um, to them. It, was a, it really was a, a wonderful opportunity for our church and definitely an opportunity for those who don't know him to come to him. Well, we are starting in our new series uh, this week. Uh, we just got done with our Choose Life series, and we're, we're in our new series called Prodigal God. And for those of you who aren't familiar, Prodigal God is really based off the book from Timothy Keller called Prodigal God. And it really explores the various aspects of the lost son or the prodigal son as found in Luke. One of the things that you need to know about the book, it has a wonderful tag, and really what's going to be the focus over the next number of weeks is that the tag is recovering the heart of the Christian faith. That's the tagline, recovering the heart of the Christian faith. And it really is the key point to the book and the whole series that we're going to look at, recovering the heart of the Christian faith. Renewing or renovation of our hearts. You know, as we talked about a few weeks ago, as we started into the new year, there's a lot of people who want to renew things and redo things. And, and a lot of that is physical, but many of it is spiritual. We need a, a renewal of our heart. One of the things that, that we are going to look at throughout this series is that no matter where you are in life, you're going to be able to apply this, this message, this story to yourselves. Some of us are, are new believers and we have to change from our old way of thinking into the new way. That's why we had a series a few weeks ago, Out with the Old, In with the New. And it's about renewing your heart. That's the, the process we call discipleship. For some of us, we've been believers for maybe a long time, and we've become maybe stale or stagnant in our faith. We need a renewal of our hearts. Some of us are, are here this morning simply going through the motions because they feel they need to. It's, it's a duty to perform in order to gain acceptance into heaven. And I tell you this morning that really is about grace. So we need a renewal of the heart. For some of us, we're lost. Maybe we're in here this morning and we feel like we've, we've done so many bad things, we've gone so far away from God, that God could never come after us, that we're lost for good. Those are the folks that need a radical transformation of the heart. So as we look at this series over the next few weeks, understand it's prodigal God, but it's really about renewing your heart of the Christian faith. So I encourage you to be open to, no matter where you are in life, that this series will apply to you as we grow and become, become disciples. As the scripture teaches. Now, as we, we read this morning, many of you will, will the, you, you that are astute will, will notice that uh, the passage we read this morning really didn't even deal with the, the prodigal son. We, we talked about the lost sheep and the lost coin. And uh, it was the passage prior to it. And uh, many of you will also say, will notice, those that uh, are astute as well, will notice that we read verse 11, which is really the next part of the next 
uh, passage, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. I just think it's interesting, as I was sitting down there, and the reader read that this morning, going, is that where it, is that where it ends this morning? Is that intentional? Yes, I know that uh, that is not a traditional way to do it, where we read scripture, where we kind of leave off half the verse. It's not the, the traditional way of doing it. I'm sure I will get some um, lovely and warm comment cards on that this week, reminding me of that error. But it is not an error, I can tell you that. It's intentional. And it's intentional that we read the story of the lost coin and the lost sheep. Why? Because you have to understand the background of this passage in order to understand the prodigal son passage at all. You have to start there. You have to start with where where the scene is. We can't understand this parable, the prodigal son, without understanding the scene in context to which it is. It's like watching a movie. If you ever turned on a movie and at the end of the movie you see there's a guy who's acting wild and crazy and doing all kinds of things and you go, that man is crazy. What is he doing? But if you understand the context of the movie, you understand that maybe something happened to him in life, a situation in his life, that he's not acting crazy, but he's acting passionate. It's not wild, but it's deliberate. And then you begin to relate to him. It's the same thing with this story. We cannot understand the prodigal son story without understanding the context in which it is. Understand, too, is the book of Luke, this chapter, chapter 15, it's really, really the center point of why Christ came. The center of his entire message, his entire ministry on earth. All coming to grips right here. So we have to look at the background of it. And so to do so, we really, in order to understand the prodigal son and even the the two parables we read this morning, we actually have to look at the last chapter to what Jesus was talking about. Chapter 14, he speaks of the cost of being a disciple. The cost of being a disciple in chapter 14, the end. One of the verses that will come up on the screen is, is 1427 of the last chapter. He says, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Understand, this is, this is really a repeat of what something Jesus already said back in chapter 9. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. Now, this is not a literal pick up a cross. I know a few years ago, you may have heard this. There was a man who had this on his mission that he took this scripture literally, and he bought a giant uh, wooden cross and put it on the back of his pickup truck and drove it across the world. And his idea was he was going to stop at various places along the way and uh, gain money and, and go. And he took that passage literally. That is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not encouraging us to go buy a pickup truck and buy a big cross and, and carry it across a country. What it is really when it talks about picking up your cross is really about denying yourself. You see, as Jesus went to, the, went to his crucifixion, he carried the cross. That was a common practice in the Roman Empire. With somebody that was convicted of a crime, they would go knock on his door, give him a cross and say, carry it to your crucifixion spot. And as the family members and friends would see this man or woman carrying the cross away, they would say, that person is going to his death. It's about dying to oneself, about being selfless. That's why we pick up our cross, because you're dying to yourself and following Christ. It goes against everything that we think or feel as, as human beings, that it's all about me. And we live in a culture that does this, don't we? 
It says in verse 33, as we continue on in Luke 14, it says, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything, everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now again, Jesus is not saying that we to have no possessions. What he's cautioning us to do is making sure our loyalty is not to our possessions, but to him, to Christ. Because we often find fulfillment in those things, those wonderful things that we have. Whether it's our our cars, or the things that we do, or the things that we have, or the house we have. We find fulfillment in them, either because because it makes us feel good, or, or I think it's because of the way other people look at us. Wow, that person is successful. They really have made a name for themselves. Wow, look at that person. Look how much he has or she has. We find loyalty in those things. Then we end up looking down at others that don't have what we have or aren't living the way that we're living. We find fulfillment in those things. Jesus is saying in chapter 14 that being a disciple is about a renovation of the heart. It's about a change from what our, 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 our flesh wants us to do. That's why Galatians says, says that the, what the flesh desires, what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. You have to have a change of heart. Die to oneself so we can be a disciple. Luke 10, somebody asked Jesus of the law in the same way. He says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's about dying to oneself. And then Jesus, as we read in verse 14, he says about salt. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit for neither soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. I thought about that for a minute. It's like, what does that mean? Well, salt is obviously, it adds flavor to something, doesn't it? If it doesn't add flavor, then we wouldn't use it. It is kind of worthless. But it adds flavor to what, what we eat. It preserves things. It adds to it. Jesus is looking for people, disciples, that are going to add to the ministry, add to the kingdom by attracting others to come in. And if not, they're really serving no purpose. They're not using their gifts for him. They're not attracting people to come into his kingdom. Jesus is looking for spectators, not recruiters. Jesus is not looking for spectators, but recruiters. Excuse me. The Pharisees were, were, were spectators. They were watching. They weren't recruiters. They weren't bringing people into the mix. They were actually pushing people away. They're saying, listen, no, that person isn't good enough. They're not following the law. They were, they were spectators, the Pharisees, not recruiters. He ends with, in verse 33 of 14, he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. That's the context to the passage we're going we're to read. Who has ears? Everybody has ears. Of course we do. So everybody needs to listen to the passage, is what Jesus is saying, because it all applies to us in various ways. It all applies to us in various ways. That's the background of the passage. Then we get right into chapter 15. Right into chapter 15. And we see the people around Jesus. 
Who are the people around Jesus? You would think that the people around Jesus would be the perfect people, the people that are, are, are trying to live perfectly, the good people, the, the goody two-shoes, the people that lived good lives. But we notice that that is not the people that Jesus attracted to himself throughout his ministry. We see that all the time. We, he attracted the blind and the beggars and, and the sinners and the sick and, and those that weren't living righteously. Those were the ones attracted to him. People are often attracted to people that, that uh, have common interests. And that was not the case in Jesus. They, did not, they were not similar to him. We understand this. If we're middle school or high school, we have, we have, we have cliques. People that we have common interests common things. We, we live a certain way, similar hobbies. That's why here at the church and the men's ministry, we're, we're developing affinity groups, groups of, of men that have similar interests in common, common, such as biking or running or hunting or fishing, things like that. Why? Because people are usually attracted to people that are similar to them. Not the case with Jesus. We see the people around Jesus were, were far different from the people that you would think would be around Jesus. We see is, if you have your service sheet to your Bible, in verse 1, the people that were around Jesus were not like him. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. And in verse 2, we also have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were muttering. I always think it's interesting is that the people that you think that would be around Jesus and listening to Jesus, the Pharisees, were the ones that weren't listening to Jesus. They were the ones muttering. And the people that you wouldn't think to be around Jesus, the sinners and the tax collectors, were the ones around Jesus who were listening. Why are the tax collectors, I wondered, too? I always wondered why they're, why they're lumped in with the sinners. Well, understand, the tax collectors were a bit of an outcast as well. They were not well-liked. They, they collected taxes, usually above and beyond what they needed. And so they were, they were kind of outcasts of society. They were known to be, kind of be, be a bit of a cheat, a bit of a liar. And so they were kind of lumped into those, those sinners because they were outcasts too. They were isolated. So they, were, they hung out together, sinners and tax collectors. So what happens, as you see in verse 2? The Pharisees and the teachers, they start muttering. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The word mutter right there is the Greek word for the word diagongazo, which is the word for muttering or murmuring, where you kind of like murmur under your breath or complain. My children do this all the time. When you tell them something and they kind of walk away and they say, I don't want what was that? Nothing. We're good. It's that, that, that muttering, that murmuring, that complaining. What were they complaining about? They were complaining. They said in verse 2, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Interestingly enough, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. That was exactly the gospel message. Jesus could have turned around, turned around to them and said, yep, you guys got it. Congratulations. That's exactly why I'm here. That's exactly what happened with Matthew and the tax collector. He says, the healthy don't need the doctor, but the sick. That's why I'm here. I didn't, call the right, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous to God. But Jesus didn't turn around and sell them that. Why? Because they weren't, they weren't adoring Jesus. They were condemning him. See, the Pharisees saw those sinners and tax collectors as aliens and strangers. They looked down upon them. They wanted them to look, be elevated above them. They looked down upon them. And there was an old saying back in the, the Jewish culture that many of these Pharisees adopted as their motto. It says, and I quote, there is joy before God when those that provoke him perish from the world. That was their motto. There is joy before God when those that provoke him perish from the world. 
This message is totally contrary to what Jesus was saying. Can you imagine if our church had that motto? Imagine any church having that motto. There are some churches out there that have that motto. They hope that all, that all the sinners, anybody that provokes God ever, will just simply perish. Now understand, was Jesus accepting of their sinful lifestyle? Absolutely not. Are we accepting of, here at the church of, of sinful lifestyles? No. Do we preach against sin? Absolutely. Do we condemn sin? Absolutely. We do that all the time. Do we hope that those that come into our doors who are lost simply perish? No, we don't. Why? Because they're of value to God. But they, the Pharisees didn't like that message, did they? They didn't like what Christ was saying to them. The, their message was, they felt like, listen, there, there's a way to get to heaven. It's about being good. It's about following the law. It's about living rightly. And Jesus' message was, no, that's not it at all. It's all about grace, because grace runs deep. That's what his message was. So, so Jesus was a much different motto than that. And it's a good thing. Because if, if Jesus adopted the motto, then people like Zacchaeus and the woman at the well would have never have found faith, would have never come to know him. Because he would have simply let them perish. And he didn't. Jesus came to save what was lost. He doesn't allow these restrictions that the Pharisees had. See, they were uncomfortable with them. They, they, they looked down upon them. They, they, they wanted to elevate themselves. Look at how good I am. Look at, I'm following the law. I'm doing everything I should be doing. I'm worshiping. I'm praying. I'm giving. Look at me. Look at me. I'm doing a good thing. It was self-absorption, self-interest that they thought could get them to heaven. They wanted the people, they wanted the people to look at the discipline they had. We do this too. Not in, in things that we have. Not only in our houses or our jobs, but maybe in the way we look. I know when, uh, for people that are, are um, members of a gym, they like to, to show off how they look. To a, a certain physique, look at my body. I know that uh, I have to go out to uh, school a couple times a year for week-long intensives, and when I'm at, um, when I'm at the uh, university there, I like to go to the gym, and I, I must admit I, I fall victim to this as well. I, I like to weight lift, and so I, I, I try to put a little bit more weight on those uh, stacks when I'm lifting at, at the college, just so the undergrads, undergraduate students, when they come in, they can say, look at that guy. He's, he can lift a little bit more weight than I can. And that all works well until the baseball team walks in, and uh, they lift the entire stack, and then I feel like a fool. And uh, I simply walk away. But it, it's a self-absorption. It's a self-interest. We like people to look at us a certain way and go, look at that guy. Look at her. Look how good she's living. Look at what they have. The Pharisees were only there because they wanted people to look at who they were, how good they were. C.S. Lewis says, what we call man's power over nature turns out to be power exercised by some men over other men with nature as its instrument. What we call man's power over nature turns out to be power exercised by some men over other men with nature as its instrument. We like to exercise power over others by who we are, what we do, what we look like. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He exposes the wrong thinking of the Pharisees. He exposes the wrong thinking. And he, and he tells a parable. He tells a story. It's the story of a lost sheep as it says in verse 4, 
He says this story. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Does that mean that 99 of the sheep, he doesn't care for them? No, absolutely not. He understands they're safe. But what he does is he finds value in the one sheep that's lost. And he puts all selfish ambition aside and all the self-sacrifice he puts into it and he goes after that sheep. No matter how hard or how far or how long it may take him, he will go after that sheep. Why? Because he finds value in that one sheep. His record isn't based on, hey, I saved 99, but I went after 100 of them. It's a demanding task. It's self-sacrifice. It's selfless. That's why Jesus is also called the good shepherd in John. I always wondered about that. Because he's the good shepherd. Does that mean there's a bad shepherd? There must be. There must be a difference between a good shepherd and a regular shepherd. A good shepherd goes after the one that's lost. A regular shepherd might say, you know what? I don't care about the one that's lost. I have 99. The good shepherd says, you know what? I'm going to put selflessness aside, and I'm going to go after that one because they're valuable to me. That's why Jesus is called the good shepherd, not just the shepherd. There's value in you. There's value in who you are. In the same token, he reads a second parable of the coin in verse 8. It says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Understand this woman rearranged her priorities, changed everything, dropped everything to find that one coin. Why? Because not that nine coins weren't valuable, but because the one coin was valuable. Rearranged the priorities, dropped everything, looked frantically, searched thoroughly. The other day, my wife was looking for ice skates for one of our children. She searched everywhere, every closet, every room. She was thorough with her search. Jesus is the same. He understands when someone's missing, when someone's lost, and goes after us. He is thorough with his search. That's really what separates Christianity from all other religions altogether. All of the religions will, will start with the premise that you have to seek your God. You have to live a certain way to gain entrance into, into eternity, into peace. It starts with you. That's the premise. Christianity is different because it starts with the premise that God is seeking us. He goes after us. Why? Because we're valuable. He's the good shepherd. Because he finds value in us and wants to have a relationship with us. It's not about works. It's not about what we can do. It's all about his love for us. So Jesus is, in a sense, asking the Pharisees if we should ignore or despise lost sheep. The Pharisees had to answer correctly. They had to say, no, we, we, we don't ignore it. We don't despise things. Because everything are, is a value to us, to him. But then he goes on, realizing that maybe they don't get it. He tells a third story. 
A third parable. Verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Who are the two sons? The two sons are the sinner and the Pharisee. That are, that's the two sons. That's the premise of the whole story. It's for, the, for them to understand that. I mean, people get focused on the wrong part of the prodigal son's story. They focus on the son, the younger brother, who, whose ultimate return, and God opens him with, with open arms. And yes, that's part of it. But understand that the story represents two different ways to be alienated from God and not be a true disciple, not be a true follower. You see, the first is the tax collector and the sinner. They respond to the younger brother. They observe neither the moral laws, the rules for ceremony, ceremony or, religious, or, or the religious rites of the Jews. They didn't give up anything like the younger brother did. They didn't deny themselves. They lived however they wanted. They didn't pick up their cross. They didn't leave selfishly. It was wild, wildly disobedient, just like the younger son. And as a result, they were outcast and isolated from the father. In the same way, the older brother represents the Pharisees in the story. They're the older brother. They held the tradition of upbringing. They studied, they obeyed, they worshiped, they prayed publicly. But it was all for selfish ambitions. Look at me. That's what the older brother said. Father, look at me. Look at all the things I've done, all the things I've done well to earn your good graces. Look at me. I've done these things. But yet you kill the fattened calf for the younger brother. So the question is, whom is the story really about? Who is Jesus talking to in the parable of the prodigal son? He's talking to both. He's looking for a change of heart, a renovation of the heart. As he talks to the sinners, he's looking for a change of heart, as a recognizing that they are of value and that he's going to go after them because they are of value, like a sheep and a coin. It's a change of heart. The second group of the Pharisees is really a change of attitude. It's a plea for them to change their, their attitude, their, their blindness, their narrowness, their selfish, their self-righteousness. To say, listen, it's, it's, it's not about looking good or being a certain way and looking down on others. It's really about a, a transformation of your own heart. Understanding that you don't go through the motions because you have to, because you want to. We don't look at others who haven't gone through those uh, following the right rules and obeying the certain laws and living a certain way. We don't judge them. We want them to come in because we find value in them. Jesus' purpose in this parable really isn't to warm our hearts but to shatter our categories. As we're going to see over the next few weeks, Jesus is going to challenge nearly everything we know about God, sin, and salvation. It's about a transformation of our own hearts as we move through discipleship. The story reveals the destructive self-centeredness of the younger brother and condemns the self-centeredness of the elder brother. Both paths lead to dead ends and isolation from God. And we're going to explore that more over the next few weeks. Well, my application for you this morning as we, as we look at the background of this, as, as we look at the cost of being a disciple and what it really means, the first thing is simple. First one, understand that our God is a seeking God. He comes after us. 
because he finds value in us. So if you're in this room and you feel lost, you feel like there's nothing that you could do to ever earn God's grace, nothing you could ever do to earn God's love, you need a transformation of your heart, a renovation of your heart which says, you know what, God loves me and cares for me. He's going to come after me, and he wants me to come to him with open arms. Second application is there are two people in the story, and some of you are like the lost person in the story. Others of you may be more like the Pharisees who, who need a renovation of your own heart. You're living selfishly. You're, you want people to look at you, how good you are, because you are in church. Or maybe you look down on others because they aren't living the same way you are, aren't living as pure, as holy, and you, you judge them. You don't want them here. My encouragement to you is to have a renovation of the heart. Have a renovation of the heart. Be open to those people and understand that those people that are lost, that grace does run deep and God wants to have a relationship with them so we'd love them. Condemn their lifestyle, condemn their, their, their living, their sinful behavior, but not wish them to perish or be in, in church with us. It's a renovation of the heart. That's why this whole series, as we will look at, really changes our attitude when it comes to sin, salvation, and really, who is God? The prodigal God. My prayer for you this morning is the same prayer that Thomas Akempis prayed when he says, let this be thy whole endeavor, this thy prayer, this thy desire, that thou may be stripped of all selfishness and with entire simplicity follow Jesus only. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. Father, we thank you for what you can teach us in your word. Father, we thank you for the fact that you come after us. Father, that you want us to have a relationship with you, and that is why you died. For some of us in this room who may feel lost, Father, I pray that we understand that you come to us as we are, Father, because you died for us, and it's not based on how we earn our way back to you, Father, but it's the fact that you love us and died for us, Father. So I ask that you give us a renewal of our hearts, Father. And Father, for those of us who may be are struggling with selfish ambition or selfish desires, Father, of how they look or appear, Father. Pray that you check our hearts this morning, that you can renew us in the same token. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and what you can teach us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.